what I'd like to do is introduce uh, our guest for uh, this month's session. Our guest is Dr. Jesse Benelli with, with Enview. Am I saying that right, Dr. Benelli? Yeah, it is. It is Enview. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me today. You know, just, just real quick, just not to jump in and just kind of, you know, take this and run with it. Uh, one, thank you for putting me on this on this show. I think being on here in the month of August for, for those you know, watching the recordings of this is the best time to be on a show like this because I can talk about anything because anything and everything is is relevant in in August in Tennessee. Yeah, and and tell the those with us. We've got um, you know, we've got a pretty good amount of lawn care operators who join us each month. We've got some golf course superintendents who join us each month. We've got industry folks. I know I've received a few emails registration wise. Uh, some colleagues from New Zealand are with us right now. We'll have colleagues from Australia. Tell a little bit of the folks. Enview might be a new name for some of those in the turf industry. Just give a little bit of background about maybe Enview, who they are, what they do, and then maybe what you do with them uh, in your role there. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as, as many of you who have uh, read the headlines in the news, it was last October that we became officially a new company. A private equity firm called Sinven happened to have, oh, some crazy number, two, some, something in the billions of cash. And, and they decided to, to make Bayer an offer that they, they couldn't uh, refuse. And uh, we became this, this new company, kind of spinoff company called Enview. And Still the same people and a lot of the same products that you guys are all familiar with. And, you know, essentially, what do I do at Enview? I guess you could break it down. I'm in technical services. I'm very much customer facing. What that means is I give a lot of presentations. I'm sure some of you have seen me present. And then some, some days I just use my, my phone and I answer two questions sometimes all day long. A lot of times it's a text message and somebody is saying, hey, Jesse, uh, what is this? I just texted you a picture. What is it? And then subsequently, the follow-up question is always the same, is how do I get rid of it? You know, sometimes I wish we had more time to have a conversation about it because there's really a third question that that I wish we could talk more about, and that is why is it here? Or why is it here in this amount, whether we're talking polo control and golf courses, chinch bugs and, and home lawns, or disease concerns, you know, across the entire green industry. Well, and you're well trained, right? I mean, as a as a two-time UT alumnus, you're you're well trained to handle those questions, or at least we like to think so. Yeah, and you know another you know funny story is, you know, so my background is uh, I got a master's and PhD at the University of Tennessee, and it was December 2016. And you know, a lot of the times in in graduate school, when you finish up, you know, life comes at you kind of quick. There's a lot of things that that tend to happen in a very short amount of time. And I, I remember just for me specifically. I got my first son was born named named Hudson. He was born in Knoxville. He was born December 1st. I walked for graduation on December 5th. And then two weeks later, took 
the family up to Chicago, to where I was working at the Chicago District Golf Association, which is kind of a similar position to say the USGA. There are some some differences. And then from there, I moved up to Canada. You know, I remember at the time it was Will McMurdo. Uh, he said, hey, Jesse, would you like to join at the time with Bayer? And I said, absolutely. It, um, I'd love to work for a company like this. And I remember asking, okay, where where is this going to be located? He said, well, how would you feel about living in Canada? And so that, that was a, a nice new experience for us and the family. I had my second child was born there and paid a total of $8, which was a parking, um, paying for parking on the, on the last day, which had I known, I could have got a voucher at the front desk uh, to cover that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I bring up that because, you know, if you learn all this, this information in grad school and, you know, in Tennessee, when I was there, we had a lot of grad students and we worked, you know, quite hard on a lot of different projects. And if you don't actively use a lot of the information that you learn, if you don't use it, you'll tend to lose it. And I remember being in Canada for three and a half years. I'm dealing with speckled snow mold, gray snow mold, things like that. I was somewhat removed from some of the concerns that everybody has about managing turf in the transition zone. So believe it or not, one of the first things that I did when I moved back to the Southeast, I had about two weeks where it was, Jesse, just, just stay at your home office, don't travel, just get acclimated to, to all of this. I pretty much binge watched the Tennessee Turf Tuesdays, and the <laughs> entire time I was like, wait, yeah, I remember now. You know, Brandon was even presenting some of my large patch work, and I was like, oh yeah, brought back, you know, some some memories of that. Oh, you know, yeah, almost like binge, binge watching like a Netflix series. He's like, are you still there? Yes. Next episode. Yeah. You're the one. You're the one. And we yeah. thank you for your viewership here at <laughs> UT. Uh, but no, that's, I mean, that's certainly a cool story, Jesse, about kind of the, the road the industry will take you, you know, for, my, for me, going from Penn State to Hawaii to Tennessee, much of the same kind of making a Z yeah. across the Northern Hemisphere. But rather than going down memory lane, I know the folks that are with us are listening and want to get something out of it relevant to them and, and managing turf this season. Um, you know, where do we want to start in terms of jumping into it in August? I mean, it's been it's been a really weird year in Knoxville. I know for you in South Carolina, kind of a weird year too. We had lots of extensive winter damage on warm season grass that that, that just through curveballs galore. Uh, yes. throughout the spring and and that even continued into the summer I mean I mean even look at a day like today where we will push 92 93 degrees in Knoxville today and it was 66 this morning at 5 30 um, yeah really yeah. just a typical from maybe a cool perspective I mean what have you seen as you've kind of gone around and visited with folks yeah you're, you're today you you, you nailed it. It was our, I guess, unfriendly reminder that we are indeed in the transition zone. You know, I, I think that in the last few years, at least, you know, some people got away with doing things a certain certain way. Uh, things were just so slow on on pretty much everything. You know, Bermuda grass lawns, zoysia grass lawns, that cold snap we had in December, 
you know, anything that still had any green tissue, you know, some of the zoysias can hang around a little bit longer. They probably got hit. And then that premature grain up in, in, in February, that affected a number of different things, disease-wise and, and with, you know, some of the, the warm season aspects of, of the turf. That late February, we have temperatures that are conducive for spring green up. And, you know, the uh, groundhog saw its saw shadow and, you know, pokes its head up out of the ground. Things are growing, they're greening up, and then we get hit with those, you know, consecutive days in mid-March of sub-freezing temperatures. And that really set things back. And you know, we talk all the time about diseases being opportunistic. And, you know, just talk about POA for a second. You know, POA was living its best life in, in the spring. That Bermuda grass turf, zoysia turf is just sitting there. And annual bluegrass loved it. So that was a big, people were staring at POA plants probably longer this year than normal. Yeah, it was a good year to be in the, in the POA control research business. Um, we had plenty of test sites and I don't envision that changing. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting and, and just, you know, to follow up on that, because it's like my favorite topic of anything I work on. You know, as we, I think you're right that the ebbs and flows of being like really warm in spring followed by being really cold, that's going to continue most likely. And I think that doesn't bode well for warm season grasses in this region, the the starts and stops of, of green up. And I, it begs a lot of questions about the fit of warm season grasses here long term. Um you know, I look at back to, to fundamental weed science work and say, well, okay, what's the number one defense against any weed? It's, it's actively growing turf, right? And yep. we not have in the transition zone for managing Bermuda grass or zoysia grass from arguably October 15th through, I mean, in some years, June 1st, but actively growing turf, Yeah. right? So we have a dormant yep. canopy that's just kind of waiting to be invaded. You know, I think there's there's a case to be made that maybe would be better served with cool season turf, and it wouldn't be perfect. It's not like if we had cool season turf, we'd have no POA plants, because um, that that certainly wouldn't be the case. But it just makes me wonder if we'd be better off with with maybe cool season turf in situations where it might not seem uh, the most straightforward. Yeah, you're you're right about that, and then just. Um... Sorry for going down memory lane one last time, but I remember the summer of 2010 and how bad that was. And, and that that's one of those years where a lot of people jumped on board to the warm season train. You know, they didn't want to do or experience that summer again uh, due to how hot it was. And then 2011 was no picnic either. But look how much things have changed just from a plant protection standpoint. You know, we have, you know, these plant breeders do phenomenal work. You know, for instance, at Rutgers, I believe they're developing some really nice ryegrass that is that is fairly tolerant to gray leaf spot. You know, some of these some of these bents that that have improved, you know, disease resistance, improved quality in, in the summer months. The products available have dramatically improved when we're talking fungicides. We now have four safe DMIs now that we didn't have back in 2010. What we know about soil-borne root pathogens has absolutely increased. 
our knowledge of nematodes, pythium root rot. We are more equipped now, I think, to handle one of those nasty summers than, than we've ever, ever been before. Uh, I, but it makes, I, you, it makes you think. I totally agree. I mean, in, you, in factoring in, I mean, I think we irrigate turf better now than we did 10 years ago, or at least we aim to do. Um, in the golf course industry, you know, moisture meters are pretty ubiquitous amongst golf course superintendents, where I'm not sure that was the case in 2010. Um, you know, our irrigation system capabilities are more improved. And, you know, there's certainly inroads to be made of older facilities, infrastructure wise with irrigation, making some improvements and our new faculty member, Dr. Bowling, I'm sure is, I'm sure is going to work on that as part of her program here. But yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a different world in 2023 than it was in, in 2010. You know, we, we could go down a wheat, we, I mean, we could do go down many roads here, Jesse, we could go down a wheat science road, we could start talking about Saints and Patriots training camp being that it's August, but that's... Oh, Sean Payton should keep his mouth shut a little bit. <laughs> I mean, that probably isn't going to make our friends yeah. at the pesticide regulatory agencies very happy if we yeah. segue into training camp. I'll... So to get us back on track, I'll, um, I'm going to ask, we had Paul Koch on in, um, in June, and we asked Paul a question, and I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, what's the Mount Rushmore, what's your Mount Rushmore of turf grass diseases? This is a great question, and I'm going to answer it being specific to the transition zone. If I was in Canada, I would say snow mold. I guess I'm going to start by saying I'm not going to include dollar spot. So that is not going to be uh, my on my Mount Rushmore. Um, I'm, about half, I'm about half expecting your advisor to like zoom in here from the side and, and slap you for that one. Okay, here it goes. Not to go up on it. I think root diseases are exceptionally more problematic in the transition zone. Dollar spot is is not that serious a disease on greens, on putting greens, because we're mowing them all the time, we're rolling them on all, all the time. They get much more consistent fertilizer inputs than say something like fairways or, or peas. And then the big thing for me is dollar spot rarely sneaks up on you. Uh, in part because it's you know basic plant pathology signs and symptoms. And I get the whole early season dollar spot inoculum aspect where the inoculum is building in the spring and um, you tend to not see the ramifications until a little bit downstream from there. But in season, the, the latency period between, say, when dollar spot is active and when you see symptoms is very much shortened. Um, you know, that's symptoms. The signs are when you can actually see that fungal material. Dollar spot lets you know when it's active. When you walk on that turf at 7.30 in the morning, all of that dew is present. You could Dollar spot is telling you that that pathogen is demonstrating it's active. You see that cottony, white, fluffy aerial mycelium in the morning, so you know when it's active. Some of these root diseases, we don't have, have that, that luxury. You know, say a root disease like pythium root rot, which is on my... Mount Rushmore, you don't really see it when it's active. You can't really lay eyes on the uh, OO score. So long story short, I would say Pythium root rot is on there. 
Uh, I would say take all root rot on Bermuda grass. I would say uh, the brown patch gray leaf spot kind of co-infection on fall fescue. And to round it out, I would say, gotta say large patch just because I did my work like that. Your advisor would talk about rhizoctonia diseases as a whole. And I've been mm -hmm. privy to some heated debates with your colleagues about whether that's even an appropriate thing to do to group so many diseases as one. I found it interesting yep. you had both large patch and brown patch of tall fescue on your tree. Yes. Yeah. That, they're, they're, they're so similar. You know, we talk about, you know, Latin names of things. There's, you know, genus and species, rhizoctonia. Uh, Solani. And then with rhizoctonias, we have this like um, these AG groupings. And, you know, for brown patch on cool season turf, it's rhizoctonia solani AG 2 2 3B. In large patches, rhizoctonia solani 2 2 LP. I mean, they're so close, even to the bitter end. Um, but they are different in, in, in unique diseases, just just based on host preferences and then based on when they're most active. And it's a great demonstration tool to show you how, you know, these pathogens have evolved to be opportunistic. Brown patch on tall fescue can grow very, very well at borderline hot temperatures. And that's when the cool season turf isn't at its strongest. And then its counterpart large patch on warm season turf it's not active at those super hot temperatures, but it drops down. You know, it, it, when temperatures are in the low 70s and, and the warm season turf is not at its optimal temperature range, that's when the pathogen, that's, that's the opportunity it has. Yeah, talk a little bit more, Jesse, about, about brown patch and tall fescue, because I know lots of extension agents join us on Turf Tuesdays every month, and they they get lots of questions from homeowners about diseases in their tall fescue yard. And, and nine times out of 10, that's a, that's a brown patch issue. And you've seen, mm -hmm. is it, has this been a big brown patch year, kind of an average brown patch year, maybe yeah. low or. I would say year to date, it's been low, but, but now is the time to pay close attention on what is actually in that tall fescue. At this time of year, Really beginning, I'd say it's second, third week of July um, and pretty much all of August. The difference between a brown patch lesion on tall fescue and a gray leaf spot lesion on tall fescue is very, very hard to do, uh, to be able to tell them apart in the field because they look so similar. Why is that important? Well, it's important because at one at one time, a basic application of a strobilier and fungicide, when you know when, when gray leaf spot just kind of took off on cool season turf, it was right around the the mid to late nineties where when that happened, it didn't get any better than a heritage or insignia, you know, basic strobilier and fungicide. At least from what I've seen in the southeast. Those chemistries are not nearly as effective as they once were as a standalone treatment. 
And so if you think you're dealing with primarily brown patch and you spray a strobilier and fungicide, well, if it's brown patch, you're going to continue to get great control. I mean, we've seen just year after year, those uh, QOI fungicides or strobilirins still very effective as a standalone against brown patch. Not so much on gray leaf spot. This is the time of year, if you haven't already and you're in lawn care and you're making your last rounds, uh, if you really want to be covered, you might want to put a DMI fungicide in that mix or something like thiophanate methyl. Uh, which had very strong activity on, on gray leaf spot. But it's, it's hard to tell. Good, it, it can confuse me. And yeah, it, it, accurate diagnosis is critical, whether it's we're talking diseases on warm season putting green turf or diseases on tall fescue landscapes. Well, and I think that that's important too for those who might work with a lawn care company that puts them on a summer disease management program. I mean, an understanding of what the targets are, you know, is important and something that's templated where it's the same fungicide portfolio year after year over the most typical targets might not always fix the problem. So, I mean, I think that's a good conversation worth having. Um, anything, you know, QOIs have been the stand, the standby on, uh, brown patch for a long time, as you noted, and you talked a little bit about a spike with diaphanate methyl and provide some coverage on gray leaf spot. Yep. Anything new in the brown patch control world, QOI or otherwise? For brown patch control in, in, in home lawns, there, there really, there's been some really exciting innovations on the golf side, um, in the, the lawn care side. Things are still pretty basic. You know, it's hard to get things registered into that that residential space. That's why we still see some, you know, what would some would consider aging chemistries. You know, for instance, one of our products that we would recommend for managing disease on tall fescue would be a product like Armada, which has a strobe and a DMI. But that DMI that that's in that material is triademical which has been around for a long time, but it's, it's one of those that happens to have the right profile to be, to be okay in the residential space, where some of the other new product launches for, you know, sometimes reasons unknown to me, it, it just doesn't make the profile to, to get put in the space. So long hair fungicides, there actually hasn't been any dramatic innovations for probably since the introduction of of the strobes in the mid nineties. Wow, I mean, and that that calls in, you know, I shouldn't say calls in, maybe places even more of a need for optimal agronomics. I mean, we've talked on this Turf Tuesday yeah. series for I think almost every year. Yeah. Um, the the concept of summer summer nitrogen applications on tall fescue lawns that. You know, yeah. when you, I cut our teeth going through school, it was oh, you you don't want to fertilize tall fescue in the in the summertime because it'll make it get brown patch and newer research has proven that that's not really true right yes. that, yeah yeah uh, it, it it probably will help you to have some nitrogen down on tall fescue in the summertime to recover from brown patch yeah systems, right? absolutely and you you know for example when when you spray a fungicide on a tall fescue plant that is infected with the brown patch pathogen you know, it has that brown patch lesion right there on that lead surface. 
just because you spray that fungicide, that lesion isn't going to peel itself off and fall to the ground. Uh, for that plant to be recovered and for that curative application to work, um, then you need to look at asymptomatic turf. And that's not going to happen until the plant grows out of that infection, which the fungicides help. But maintaining that, that nitro nitrogen inputs, those fertilizer apps, I, I think that's really important. You know, and I've heard Brandon talk about this, where he goes back and he, he talks about the recommendations that were in place 50 years ago. You know, we're back when they may have put eight to 10 pounds of nitrogen on the turf. During that time, yeah, I could see that you have an unsustainable, lush, dense turf, very succulent tissue. That's, you know, easy eating if, if you're, you're a, a fungus like Rhizoctonia and no one's doing that. I think being any, any, you know, that three to four pounds a year, I think you're going to look, I think you're going to have some great tall fescue, even if you're putting th those down in half pound increments, you know, throughout those summer months. We did have a question come in, Jesse, that, that you can certainly speak to, and it's about hybrid Bermuda grass. And I don't know if it's golf green specific or not, but the question was about root rot on hybrid Bermuda grass. And I would imagine that that's a take all root rot question yeah. uh, rather than a Pythium root rot question. Do you want to yeah. kind of shed some light on that? Yep. And then the sad reality is it's likely both because you, you find both in the same sample all the time. If we're talking putting grains, in any putting green sample, you can find uh, evidence of pythium. You can see the pythium spores with the microscope. You're going to see that runner hyphae caused by the, the take-all patch organism. And you're going to have pathogenic nematodes. So it's, it's very challenging to know which one's the primary culprit. You know, just going back to take-all root rot for a second, there was a... It was a, these are either a thesis project or a dissertation project at Mississippi State working with Dr. Maria Tomaso Peterson, who has done so much for this industry from a turf pathologist standpoint. She's outstanding. And they did aggressive sampling on, on these ultra dwarf Bermuda grass putting greens, where they, they literally took you know, little samples from probably 150 different locations on the same green. And what they found is in some years, every single sample they took had not just at least one of the pathogens that causes take-all root rot, but now we know there's four different pathogens that, that, that cause it. So wow. it's always present. Uh, and realistically, when your Bermuda grass is actively growing, you're likely dealing with some infection from either take-all root rot Pythium root rot or something like mini ring. And, you know, not to go off topic, but it, it's it's August 1st, which is brings a smile to my face because one of the projects I've been working on for several years at, at Bayer, now NVU, was a product launch that we're actually having today. It's August 1st, is a product called Resilia, which is, to the best of my knowledge, the first fungicide slash nematicide that was exclusively developed to manage just that problem, which is root diseases. It has activity against barrier, barrier ring, patch diseases, which includes take-all root rot, 
uh, pythium root rot, and then also suppression of some of our really bad nematodes that we see in the southeast, such as root knot nematodes and sting nematodes. But yes. those applications should be made uh, yesterday. Uh, now is the time we're going through the gauntlet of mini ring is active. Take out root rot is going to be active very shortly. And then that takes us right into that spring dead spot season. So a lot of these applications on Bermuda grass, I get if, if you're spraying Dacanil with, say, Signature or some type of contact fungicide, keep those on the leak surface. Spray them on the surface, let them dry on the surface. But most other applications, take a good hard look and decide for yourself, do I want to water in this application? And take advantage of the fact that many of our fungicides uh, are xylem systemic, meaning that if you do water them in, in an ideal world, they're going to get taken up by the roots and then they move up to the shoots. So a lot of times you're going to get foliar disease control if you water something in, but you won't necessarily get a root protection if you make a purely foliar uh, application. So I want to I want to go back real quick here, Jesse. You, know, you talked about some of Maria's work with multiple um, multiple uh, multiple fungi pathogens, pathogens that, are, yeah. that are kind of falling under the banner of take all root rot. Um, are most of the AIs active on all of the things that fall under that banner, or do certain AIs touch? You know number one and three, but miss two and four? Like, how, how does yeah. that really work? The latter. It, and that's the frustrating thing. Uh, there, there, there's, there's times when, you know, I, forgive me, I don't know if this is work by Dr. Maria Tommaso-Peterson, if this is work from Jim Kearns' lab, but I, I've seen some of those results where you get excellent control. Let's say you use a strobe on this particular pathogen, uh, but not the other one. And vice versa, when we're talking about some of the SDHIs and, and uh, DMI chemistries, which brings up another point of being able to rotate some of your modes of action and have multiple things in there to cover a, a broader spectrum of pathogens, which is crazy because we talk about cover a broader spectrum of diseases, but in this case, it's, we're talking about the spectrum of pathogens that cause that disease which is not that different from what we see with pythium root rot as well, is to my knowledge, there isn't just one pythium fungicides, fungicide that controls every single isolate of pythium that causes root rot. That's, that's wild. I mean, and, and certainly something I know, you know, you, you talked earlier about it's different now than it was in 2010, and nobody was really talking about this in 2010 in terms of... No. Bacteria's diseases of yeah. grass and multiple pathogens causing it, but but here we are. Um, you know, with your your new product, Resilia. Am I saying that right? Yep, yep, Resilia. So is that is just so I understand it to make extension recommendations in the future. So there's two AIs in there, and that provides greater coverage against that spectrum of root fungi yeah. that one might see in Bermuda yeah. grass. Yeah, this one, there's actually three different actives in, in Resilia, spanning three um, different modes of action. And so, you know, I mentioned that this, this product controls, you know, fairy ring, cash diseases, um, 
root pythium, pythium root rod, and pathogenic nematodes, you know, there's a lot of differences in the organisms I just mentioned. Patch diseases, that's something like take all root rot, summer patch, spring dead spot. Those are caused by ascomycete fungi. Something like mini ring and fairy ring, that's caused by basidiomycetes. Pythium root rot isn't caused by a fungus at all. And nematodes, heck, they're in the animal kingdom. So they're, they're wildly different organisms. You know, the frustrating thing is what do they have in common? And what they have in common is they all affect the same plant part, which is, which is the roots. So we really thought, you know, in developing Resilia that we need, we knew we needed multiple AIs for what we wanted to ask this, this product to do. And so one of the active ingredients is prothioconazole. That is the DMI that's in the fungicide Densicor. And so what is that contributing to the spectrum of control? Well, Densicor or prothioconazole is a specialist on things like patch diseases and, and ferritin. So we got that covered. Does not control pythium. So for that, we use propamacarb, which is the active ingredient that's in banal that people have been using and have trusted for more than 30 years in, in the space. So that controls pythium. And then for nematode control, we included, essentially when you apply resilia at its single use rate of four fluid ounces, you're putting down the quarter high rate of indemnify. And so that's how we're, we're, we're getting that spectrum of control. And it's something, at least talking about nematodes just for a second, it's something guys have wanted and they were already starting to do that is put more consistent applications down for, for nematode control. And that's something they can now do legally on the label with Resilia. That's uh, really cool. I mean, and I'm, you know, as you noted in the beginning, you know, as a, a person who makes site visits largely focused on weed control issues, understanding things that can make desirable turf, be it for meteorites or zoysia grass, healthier and more competitive against weeds is certainly relevant to me. So I'll ask you another follow-up. So I know in site visits made in 2023 by myself and, and other colleagues, um, you know, I can think of one, you know, in two weeks ago for uh, many ring reasons on a golf course, um, you know, Densicore was brought up as a, a fungicide option for golf course fairways. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of viewed in a way that was favorable because it's a lower price point product. When one thinks about fungicide pricing, they think about greens pricing. And yes. then when you try to like scale that out to 30 or 40 acres of fairways, yep. it, it gets hard to run the numbers. So yeah. with this new launch of yours, and maybe it's too soon to, to say, but like, is it going to be priced similar to Densicore or priced similar to what a, a greens fungicide would be? So that, that's a that's a good question. And you know, moving forward, you know, with with the uh, say I'll I'll take it back to 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 banal. So a lot of people have used banal for pythium root rot on greens, and and then if you take the cost of banal, and when you put resilia down, you're putting down essentially the standard rate of banal, the two fluid ounce per thousand rate of banal when you put down resilia. I think a lot of guys are going to move to Resilia based on the price point. So Resilia, it, it is priced at 445 an acre. Um, the kind of cool thing is 
you know, we have fall solutions, which is coming up, which is a big time for all the manufacturers out there, all of our distribution reps. And that's when a lot of superintendents make a lot of their decisions for next year. But there's also something called now solutions where we have, you know, spectacle herbicide for, for fall polo control at a reduced price. Uh, Resilia is on our now solution. So it costs roughly $445 an acre now, and then you're going to be able to take off $20 or so off, off that being in, in that program. You know, you, you mentioned about prices of, of products. You, know, you can pretty much tell based on how something is priced, whether or not it's a putting green material or a fairway material. And normally if something is you know, depending on the rate, say under 200 an acre, uh, that's going to be designed probably for fairway use. And then some other products that are, you know, three, four, five hundred $500 an acre, those would be used more, more on green. Yeah. And, what, and how does sports turf factor into this, Jesse? I mean, do you think with kind of how common some of these root, fung root pathogens are now for warm season grasses, were we in a world where these are going to have a fit in sports turf as well, and there's going to be a need for these pathogens to be controlled in sports turf, or is the footprint of, say, a singular rectangular field just so small that it's not really a relevant issue right now? Yeah, you know, just, just in terms of, you know, is there a, a need for that? You know, I, I, I think there is that, you know, sports turf, uh, for whatever reason, it is one of those where it is hard to get registrations for products, and they definitely have a urine extension. So you live this a lot, and I get a lot of phone calls. Uh, the pool of chemistries available uh, drops dramatically, whether we're talking sports turf and 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 lawns. I do think there is there is a, a, a need for that develop to develop innovations to protect sports turf from from root diseases. And that's true whether or not they they overseed or with ryegrass or or they don't. Uh, they need that protection. Some of the worst spring dead spot I've ever seen on a Bermuda surface was from a Bermuda grass athletic field. So they they are definitely not immune from some of the same challenges that warm season uh, turf experience in the Gulf space. Uh, they just have less resources as it pertains to products available to to handle those challenges. No, that makes sense. We've got another question that's come in going back to Brown Patch and Tall Fescue. Uh, listener asks, should I bag clippings when I'm mowing my tall fescue yard and I'm dealing with Brown Patch? Uh, so grow the fungus and bag it and remove it from the lawn. So would, would harvesting clippings and yep. discarding those clippings from a, uh, a yard help with Brown Patch management? I know what my answer is, but I, I'm going to yeah. let you first as the trained pathologist Just do do what i do is collect the clipping and sprinkle them in your neighbor's yard uh that, that <laughs> I'm, I'm joking if you're listening I, I'm, I'm joking it's not it's not an official recommendation yeah. for many yeah. of you <laughs> not an official you know, that's just me me having fun with this um yeah that is the that is one of the sources of of inoculum is you know even if you put down a fungicide you're not killing the fungus you're simply kind of forcing that fungus in remission, so to speak. And those clippings are where a lot of that inoculum 
risks, especially if we're talking gray leaf spot. So I mentioned, you know, gray leaf spot in tall fescue right now is absolutely a concern throughout Tennessee and the Carolinas, wherever there's tall fescue. Um, absolutely for something like gray leaf spot as well, which is one of those that, you know, there's a lot of spores in those clippings. And a lot of these over, you know, these survival structures you know, all they need is the, the environment to start to, to, to regrow itself. Removing those clippings helps. You know, same thing when I hear Ben McGraw talk about um, ABW control. Uh, don't dump your, your collar or putty green clippings right next to the golf green. Take them off site because that's where, in his world, the inoculum is just the ABW eggs and the ABWs and them themselves. In the disease world, same thing. If you can, bag them. Um, just remember, when you remove clippings, you're also losing a natural source of uh, fertilizer, pretty much. Uh, so make sure that you're um, supplementing that that deficit by adding a little bit of uh, nitrogen when you do that. Yeah, because that's what I was curious about, was that surely it would remove the inoculum, but is there a trade-off and maybe too big of a trade-off that the nitrogen from the clipping return for recovery yeah. purposes being lost maybe makes the physical removal of the inoculum not worth it. Yep. And then, you know, you just think it through the logistics. What are you going to do with all those clippings? Um, you know, I guess for the homeowner, I mean, you could start some type of composting or, or whatever. But if you're a large lawn care operator, you know, with those those, those trucks and, and you, you're principally, say, mowing yards, I don't know what you do with those clippings. You could load them into the back of the trailer, put a tarp on, but you know it's easier if you're dealing with a very small lawn. Like I have a very small lawn myself. I could do something like that, but on some of the, the these you know bigger lawns, bigger spaces, it's kind of easier said than done. Kind of like phrase mowing. It's it's a lovely idea, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah, and your lawn might be the only lawn in America with its own Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should bring that back. He, uh, Dr. Brosnan's talking about, I think it was the at Suburban Yard. And uh, I forgot my password. And then, which is why that kind of lawn account is, has been sitting idle. Um, I had it connected to some, some Canadian accounts. It, you know, with that, that whole start, it, it did start that, that lawn, which is kind of funny is, you know, what happens if, if you just put the, the pedal to the metal and tried to get the best lawn possible in, in the, the neighborhood. And I started it kind of right before COVID and, and when I was living in Ontario and then COVID hit and I really didn't have much better things to do because we were locked down. You, you couldn't really leave uh, your house. So it was when we were in the midst of that, that COVID pandemic where that, that lawn account got a, a, a little bit, a little bit crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's no new content, but for those of you who might not have seen it, highly recommend to go check it out. I mean, Jesse did a great job with, I think you had drone pictures, like overhead aerials of your yard, highlighting the straight line. Next yeah, that was this year because I, I, I overseed my lawn with, with perennial ryegrass, something that is still, it is August 1st, it is still hanging around. Um, and at this point, I'm not going to do anything to intentionally get rid of it because I'll be seeding it again in a month from now. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, we're, we're, we're running out of time a little bit here, but we got enough to delve into this. You know, I know plenty of places that tried to spray out their overseeded ryegrass this spring and did not fully succeed. Um, certainly canopy reduced, 
but was on a golf course last Monday and you could clearly see where they had overseeded with ryegrass and where they did not. Um, it, you know, it becomes interesting if ryegrass overseeding is an every year endeavor. I mean, nobody has all the answers and it's just fun to kind of get curious about like, why are we spraying out the ryegrass anyway, if it's going to naturally persist deep into the summer and then we're going to replant ryegrass again. In yeah. Early yep. And, you know, as you know, every, every season is, is, is definitely different. Uh, we actually had a spring this year, uh, but it, 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 it is really interesting, you know, think because, you know, a lot of people oversee a lot of surfaces along, along the coast of the Carolinas where, you know, their busy traffic season is, you know, October through say March or April. And it, it looks phenomenal. And then, and then at some point, you know, spring kind of segues into summer, and then all of a sudden, let's 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 get rid of the ryegrass because we want it to be just uh, Bermuda grass. Some of that I, I think is cosmetic that we want it to be more uniform. We want it to be you know just a, a mono stand of of Bermuda grass or zoysia grass. But then again, you're going to be receiving it in just just a couple of months, and maybe take an area that's say not that much in play and and just see how you like it, you know, see, see how it, it, it performs. Yeah. I, I think there's pros and cons, uh, just using myself as an example in my own yard right now, I got a lot of great leaf spot that's eating my ryegrass. Well, then the Bermuda grass just kind of comes up and kind of fills that. So I at least have some cover. It's, it, it works for, for what I'm doing, but you know, see, see how it looks next summer. You know, yeah. take the section and, and see. I think it's interesting. I mean, I was on a golf course site visit a couple of weeks ago and superintendent made a really, really interesting point. He said, for me, I need to do whatever maximizes the number of high quality playing condition days I can have in a year. So for him, that's overseeding with ryegrass every single year based on his location. And obviously they'll fall overseed and they're going to keep that overseed as deep into the, into the uh, spring and early summer as they can. And, you know, he said to me, his plan moving forward is they're not going to spray it out. They're going to have some natural attrition during the summer and there'll be an ebb and flow of what Bermuda grass might be there and what might not be there given the environment. But if the objective is high quality playing conditions for the maximum number of days per year and ryegrass overseeding is going to be the key to doing that for the shoulder seasons in this location they didn't see a need to spray it out and i thought that was a interesting way to kind of re maybe look at things through a lens of playability and the customer more so than yeah cosmetically through the eye of a turf grass manager yeah that um I, I i love that because that that's from did you say that was from a superintendent Jim, that was, was that from a golf course superintendent. That was his. Yep. That's his mo of how he makes decisions, and I, I, I remember yeah, that. That's, that's one of those where you know, because I love how many different platforms there there are right now for superintendents to to, you know, express their voice and have opportunities to present to their peers. I I'd love to see you know someone give a give a pre presentation on what he's seen by doing that, not spraying it out. You know, what what are some of the pros and cons that, that he sees and, and, and why he's going to go a, a certain direction? And 
I think that'd be a fascinating topic. I think a lot of guys would be interested. And in, in my hope, Jesse, this is a little bit of a tangent, but as our industry, particularly the golf industry, has become more data heavy and, and interested in kind of performance metrics of how, say, a golf ball responds to a surface. I hope we can come to a place of using those tools to justify maybe agronomic decisions that are a little bit atypical than what we learned in school, right? Because yeah. I could see a world where, well, if I can communicate to the golfers, the club leadership, the membership, wherever that, yes, it may look a little different in July because I didn't spray the ryegrass out, but the performance of the surface is the same from a ball reaction standpoint and then layering kind of the resource use piece, mm -hmm. well, then that could help those decisions become more permanent part of what we do. Absolutely. Yep. We've got another uh, question for you here. Any recommendations for best seed for a tall fescue lawn? And I'm imagining that that is through a lens of brown patch management. Yep. The best seed, I'm going to, in my mind, I'm going to interpret this as nice, a, a nice, nice home lawn in, in, in suburbia. They, they want their, their, their tall fescue to look good. Uh, if it says Kentucky 31, that, that does have utility in some spaces. But if, if you want that nice high amenity landscape, you're going to have to, to pay more money for quality certified seed. Uh, and you know, I give a lot of credit to a lot of our distributors out there, you know, some of those bigger companies. They, every year, they're taking a look at NTEPs and, and, and finding different combinations and making sure that they're providing certified seed to their customers. So that's number one, make sure that it's certified seed. And then, for instance, for me, if, if as a turf pathologist, if I wanted a lot of brown patch, I would only use one cultivar. I would want a mono stand, uh, but that's not super sustainable. So I would look at a blend of at least at least two, preferably three different cultivars of tall fescue in there. And heck, even if it's you know a few percentages of Kentucky bluegrass in there as as well. Yeah, and I'll chime in and add that I would encourage you to use real human beings when you make these decisions. I recently learned about. Uh, I don't want to say it's a movement because that's too big of a phrase, but a colleague of mine gave a presentation and said that one of the things that was shared from an audience member at that presentation was that they used chat GPT to determine what were the best grasses for their situation. And while novel and using technology to get to an answer, I'm not so sure that I want the robot making my turf grass management decisions for me. Um, so definitely uh, a plug for using human beings. Yeah, and if you're in Tennessee, you know, we're, we're lucky as a state that, you know, we have extension offices in all 95 counties and expertise in all 95 counties, people that are, um, you know, have training and education in this area, and they also know what they don't know. And if they can't get an answer to you, they can reach out to myself or one of my colleagues who's a specialist to get you the most cutting edge information um, that's out there. And, you know, on the on the variety piece and, and, and grass selection front, I know Dr. Sorokin, that's one thing his lab does quite a bit is all of the variety testing 
uh, of warm and cool season grasses here in Knoxville. So certainly uh, uh, in-state resources for those of you in Tennessee that might be uh, listening to this. Jesse, what I'm going to do, because we're coming up on the end of our time, I'm going to put for our superintendent colleagues the information they need on the screen. So this is for golf course superintendents only. Uh, this is for their continuing education units. I'm going to say this very clearly. This has nothing to do with pesticide credits. There's no linkage to pesticide points or credits for any kind with what you see on the screen. This is only for our uh, golf course superintendent friends that need to uh, track their education through the GCSAA website. The event approval code for that is listed right here. And then you wanna make sure that you list today's event date. Again, this has nothing to do with pesticide credits of any kind. If you are watching this as a recorded uh, session on YouTube, where you can get these superintendent education points archived, uh, you wanna make sure that you note today's event date uh, when you log that into the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America website. Well, Jesse, to quote uh, a show we both grew up with on ESPN on, on, I think it was Sunday mornings, do you have any parting shots? I, I guess uh, well, one thing, thanks for having me. And I guess what I'd leave you with is, you know, I, I know once we hit September, there's a lot of concerns, spring dead spot, large patch, fall, polo, but don't forget about what's here now. There, there is a lot of um, diseases on these bent and Bermuda putting greens. Don't lose your sight on what's here and now and uh, good luck the, the rest of the way. Yeah, I mean, in the wheat science world, I'd argue our season's just starting, right? You know, yep. we're, I think historically we think about, well, the season starts in spring with pre-crab apps, but I, I don't know that that's true anymore. Um, I kind of mm -hmm. think this is the time where it's post goosegrass cleanup and I better have my ducks in a row poa-wise going into the winter because if I don't, the hurdles that are imposed by not having a thoughtful program in fall and early winter are super, super high yep. and, and hard to pass. And, you know, one thing that, that my group here at UT has done, and I'll put this out there for anybody who wants to engage, you know, if you want to sit down and talk about your POA program for the fall, we can certainly do that. I know, Jesse, you have resources at Enview that you can do that with folks too. I mean, I think you told me once that there this is the most nuanced topic that you you deal with in, in POA control, it is. right? It, it's the most fascinating thing. I use the word intimate because every property is different. You know, when, when I'm showing POA data slides, you almost need to set up each location. This is what how this POA behaves at this property. This is some of the background on this specific population because no one has the same POA. It's yeah, a fascinating right. and frustrating topic. That's right. And that means it takes time and it's not prescriptive. There's no one magic cocktail that's going to solve every single problem at every single location. And I'm happy to help in any way that we can. But Jesse, I, I, I thank you for your time and, and joining us. Always good to have an alumnus back uh, on Turf Tuesdays and wish you the best the rest of the year. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Happy to, happy to do it. Had a lot of fun.
Awesome. Awesome. We will uh, see everybody uh, in September. Uh, we're going to have uh, what will probably be a more pleasant discussion than we originally thought. This was going to be a, uh, a supply chain session. And uh, by all accounts, things in the pesticide supply chain wise uh, have improved. So we will have Jeff Marvin uh, from PBI Gordon on to talk about supply chain issues in the uh, pest management industry. And that will be uh, in September. So until then, enjoy the rest of your day.